Well, we are continuing our study into the book of Nehemiah and his life and the things that happened with him and God, how God used him. I was debating whether to continue this or not, and I thought that this kind of, kind of applies to what's happening in our world right now. Nehemiah saw his country in a state of disrepair that needed to be fixed, and I think we see our country sort of in a state of disrepair and in need of help as well. Our call to action may not be to rebuild a city, but I think the principles listed in Nehemiah may help us as a church and as Christians to do what God wants the church and Christians to do. Now, we've been talking the past couple of weeks, we've talked about Nehemiah's God-given burden, about how he wants, he has his burden to repair his hometown. And it started out with a divine appointment, just going about his normal business. His brother shows up, starts talking, and the conversation turns into a divine appointment, gets Nehemiah's attention, and the burden begins for him. And we talked about divine appointments are when situations happen that we think are by accident, but what's happening is God is setting events in motion to get our attention or to prompt us to step out and do something that we would not have normally have done. Now, Nehemiah's brother coming to talk to him was no accident, but a divine appointment. We talked about that even in our prayer. When we have Christmas time, we get with family. God, open the door. Let it be an appointment by you that our conversation turns to Christ. God still uses each, one, each of us and points appointments in our lives that God wants to work through. Now up to this point, Nehemiah was a faithful cupbearer. He was respected, was a king, probably his friend. Because of his faithfulness in his daily life, God allowed the king to give him favor and materials he's going to need to build this wall. If you remember, we ended with verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 8. It says, And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was upon me. So not only does he get the materials and he gets these letters instructing the people he's going to encounter on the way to help him. And now we're going to pick it up in chapter 2, verse 9. It says, When I came to the governors of the province west of Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. Now remember, King Nehemiah asked the king for these letters before he left for his protection from those he was going to encounter on the way. Remember, these guys were officials in their town. They were the leaders of the town. And they were like like the governors of their town. And the king was over the governors. And so they wanted letters from the king to instruct the governors on how to act. And verse 7 says this, I also said to the king, If it please your majesty, give me letters to the governors of these provinces west of the Euphrates rivers, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. He wanted to have these letters in anticipation of hardship he was going to face. He knew from Ezra's time there that the officials, the governors in the town are going to give him grief. And so he won a letter from the king who was over the governors to instruct them to let him do his thing. So he had planned this beforehand. He, he learned from the mistakes of Ezra. He learned from those things and he was ready. He just didn't jump on this and leave town on a whim. He prepared before he left. And it appears from the text that he left right away after the king gave him these letters. Now the trip was about two months to get there. And these letters, he had them in his pocket, ready to go, because he knew he was going to face opposition when he got there. Now it wasn't a lack of faith that he wanted these letters. Now he could have said to the king, hey, I'll just trust God. When I get there, the governors will listen to me. I don't need any letters from the king. Stepping out in faith is not a blind leap. God gives us wisdom and direction in the things that we do that we know we can do 
God is going to finish the rest. God gives us wisdom and understanding of what's happening around us and how to handle the situation. In the Old Testament, the Bible says that the sons of Issachar knew how to read the times and they knew what God wanted them to do. It's imperative for us to understand what's going on around us to prepare for whatever is happening. Faith isn't just throwing up your hands and hoping that God does it. God wants us to plan. Nehemiah did all that he could do on his end. He planned and prepared, got the letters, got the lumber, got the king's okay. He did what he can do. At that point, it becomes faith because at this point, the, the governors could rip up the letters. They can ignore him. They could ignore the king. They could do whatever they wanted to, and the king probably wouldn't find out. That's what he trusted God for. He did what he could do, and when it came to the point where it was no longer in his control, that's where he trusted God. Nehemiah's faith was in the things he had no control over, not the things within his control. God gives us wisdom. God gives us things that are in our purview, in our ability to handle. If we handle those, when we come to the things that we can't handle, that's where God comes in. That's where faith comes in. Things that we are not able to control. Nehemiah 2.9 continues to says, The king, I should, ask, had, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. Again, not a lack of faith. He could have said, no, don't give me the horses, don't give me the guards, I'm good, I can go on my own, I trust God. But he didn't. There's a few reasons why he didn't do that. The first one was, well, the king commanded it. It wasn't Nehemiah's idea, it was the king's idea. And he's not going to go against the king. The king wants to provide it for me, I'm going to do it. The second reason was he was the king's emissary. He was in tight with the king, he knew the king, and he needed the king's protection. Bad guys could have gotten to the king through Nehemiah if he didn't have this protection. So it was for the king's benefit as well. And the last point is both the king and Nehemiah knew of the trouble he was going to encounter on the way. He knew it. He knew the grief he was going to get. He needed protection. To go without the protection would have been foolish. And I, I equate that as kind of testing God. When the enemy told Jesus, hey, jump off the temple, you're good, you can make it. Jesus didn't do that. He said, you're testing God when you do that. When you have the ability to control things, not controlling them is you're testing God in that area. Luke 14, 28 says, but don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of building without first getting estimates and then checking to see if there's enough money to pay the bills? When you face decisions as big as this one, or even little ones. The Bible commands us to get as much wisdom as we can about the situation before we take the leap of faith. And we need to make sure that what we have is logical, and then at that point, we trust God for the rest. Now, Jesus is talking about being a disciple in that, that particular verse, but those examples are just as valid. We, we bought these air conditioners. Big, big leap of faith for us, but we we did our homework. We got bids, we got estimates, we, got the, we counted the cost, we knew what it would cost, we figured that hopefully the savings from the electricity would, would help that. And we knew that in time the ones we had would fail in summertime and when we needed them most. And we wouldn't be able to get them right away. So we did our homework, we planned, and we prepared, and we trust, now we trust God to be able to fulfill that need. Whenever you're trusting, attempting something in faith for God, 
you can be sure that the enemy is not going to like it. And he's going to put obstacles in your way to stop it. Nehemiah 2.10 says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of my arrival, they were very angry that someone had come who was interested in helping Israel. How many of you, when you try something for God or really step out and do something that you know is right, instantly face opposition? And it may be from people, it may be from circumstances, it may be things that are going on around you, things that get your mind off of what God has called you to do. When you begin to pray, I know this happens to me, when you start praying, all these other thoughts come in your mind about things you have to do. Nothing to do with prayer. I gotta paint that, I gotta fix that, I gotta do that. Rather than trying to focus on praying. And, and I, don't, I can't kneel when I pray because when I kneel I fall asleep and it's harder to get back up. So I have to walk because it keeps me concentrating. Whenever you t- attempt something for God, the enemy is gonna do whatever he can to stop you from doing it. And maybe even, and we're gonna see later on, how he does that. Now remember, it wasn't just Nehemiah coming into town, it was him, an army of guys, and, and a bunch of horses. So, and they were no doubt armed, so it wasn't like he snuck into town. He walked into town and everybody knew he was there. So who were the two guys that were his enemies? Well, the first guy is Sanballat. He seems to be the leader, although he's not called a governor. Back in earlier verses, they referred to him as a governor. He was a leader of some kind in Samaria, probably the one that everyone focused on. They got their marching orders from him. Nehemiah 4 verse 1 says this, When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? He was, of all of them, he was the most vocal. He was the most instrumental in trying to oppose it. He's always the one that's mentioned first when they list the people that are against Israel. Nehemiah 2.19 says, but when Sanballat the Horonite, Nehemiah verse four, or chapter 4, verse 7. But when Sanballat, Tariah, Tobiah, and the Arabs. Nehemiah 6, 1. When the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah. So he was the guy that was, it seems like he was in charge of the army. He might have been the governor. We're not sure. It doesn't really tell us. And he was the one that everyone looked to for leadership. And we all, have, we all know people like that. When I, uh, when I was first going through preacher school, I guess, one of the uh, things they talked about was how you, you, know, you have a deacon board in your church. And the one thing they told us is, as pastors, try to find out who the leader of the church is. It's not necessarily the person with the title. It's the person to whom everyone defers. If someone says this and they all, oh, okay, well, so-and-so says that's so we got to do that. That's the person that everyone follows. And Sanballat was this kind of guy. He may not have even had the official power, but people put their faith in this guy and they followed him. So he was by, by default the leader of this mob. Nehemiah verse six, or chapter 6, verse 17 talks about Tobiah. Now he was an Ammonite. And you know Ammonites are always already enemy of the Jews. But he was already related by marriage to some of Nehemiah's co-workers and had many friends in the town. Nehemiah 6.17 says, Also in those days the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was a son-in-law 
to Shechaniah, son of Era, and his son Johananin had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. So here you have a guy who is an enemy of the Jews married to someone who was in the Jewish faith. Now what does the Bible say about that? In the Old Testament, God says, don't marry outside of Jewish faith. If you're a Jew, you marry a Jew. And the thing, same thing transfers in the New Testament. The Bible says, don't be unequally yoked. Don't marry a person who's not a believer. Now why does it say that? Because eventually that person is going to lead you astray. I've talked to a lot of people who have married people who weren't Christians. Or they dated people who weren't Christians. And they've used the term missionary dating. How many have heard that term? Missionary dating. Missionary dating is when you date someone with the hopes of getting them saved. Okay, that doesn't usually work. What happens is in in a situation like that, once a Christian was not a Christian, they're going to eventually start parting ways on how they believe, and what they, how they act, and what they do. And two, one of two things is going to happen. The Christian is going to stay a Christian and stay solid at the anger of the other person. Or the Christian is going to give in to the other person to keep the peace, and then they go this way. And that's exactly what happened with this guy and his family and what happens with Christians today. So now we have a guy who's related by marriage to the enemy of the Jewish people. And what that means is, since he's related to them, he's got family members that are going to be helping with the wall that he's going to talk to and get inside information from. So it's just a a huge net that, that the enemy's using to try to stop what God's doing. So we have Sambalat who's in charge of the army, And Tobiah was kind of the information gatherer, the intelligence part of that that outfit. He gathered all the inside info from all the people in the town because they all liked him, they all knew him, and they would talk to him and they would tell him what's going on. Even the people that were building the wall were talking to this Tobiah guy, telling him the plans. And so he was using that information, bringing it back to Sanballat, and Sanballat was using that to attack the Jews. So the problem wasn't only from without the camp, the problem was also from within because the people that were supposed to be helping and on the side of the ones building the wall were kind of leaking information to the enemy. You know, it's one thing to know the world's against you, right? We know that. The Bible says the world's against us. And we expect that. Jesus said that. John 15, 18 says, when the world hates you, remember it hated me before it hated you. But when you get it from within, your family, your church, whatever it might be, when you have the enemy using those around you, that's worse than what the world can do. So attempting great things for God or even just trying to live godly should automatically evoke grief from outside. The Bible says, be wary when all men speak well of you. If everybody likes you and everybody agrees with you, something's wrong. Now, I'm not just talking about Christians, I'm talking about the world. It's really disheartening to hear trouble coming from inside. You expect it from the outside. But now Nehemiah is going to get it from the inside. And the worst part is when, when your family, your friends, your, your neighbors are trying to do their best to stop what God's doing in your life. How many have had Christians trying to talk you out of something that you were trying to do for God? 
Ah, you'll never get that done. That'll never work. Don't do that. Look at our country. It's one thing to be hated and despised by other countries. You expect that. But to be hated and despised from people who live in this country. But Nehemiah didn't let any of that stop him. And sometimes you just want to quit at that point. Well, the world's against me, the inside's against me, I might as well just quit. But he didn't. Verse 11 says, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. So after his two-month journey, he takes a three-day rest. How many know it's okay to rest? How many of you take naps on Sunday afternoon? Nobody takes, come on. Uh, okay, there we go. I'm, I'm, you know, no, this, this. Like you're in a classroom, right, Dar? I, had a, I saw a t-shirt that says, Jesus took naps. Be like Jesus. Everyone needs to take time to rest and let God re-energize their bodies. How many understand that? As much as I don't, I think sleeping is a waste of time. You could do a lot more if you didn't have to sleep. God designed your bodies to need rest. So it's okay to rest. How many of you make mistakes and do things wrong when you're tired and exhausted? And you, you say things, you do things you probably wouldn't have done had you been wide awake and alert. So we need to take time to rest and, but get ready for what's next. It was a three-day rest. It wasn't a six-month rest. So after his three-day rest, he gathers a few guys and he goes out at night to get a lay of the land. And verse 12 says, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. So he doesn't tell anybody what he's doing. He doesn't tell his crew because if he told his crew, it might get back to the bad guys. He wasn't sure who was faithful, who wasn't. He grabbed a few leaders that he could trust and he goes out at night to figure out what the situation really was. He had heard about it, but now he wants to go out and inspect it for themselves. A good leader takes time to analyze the situation by himself or with just a few trusted counselors. Assess the situation, look at it, what's going on, get a real view of it. Don't just listen to what someone tells you. Analyze and inspect it for yourself. He needs to take time to plan out his strategy. What's he gonna do? Before he gets all these guys together, he needs to know what the plan is gonna be, what it's like, what everything's situation is gonna be. He just didn't throw it out there and say, let's go start building the wall. He needed to assess how bad the wall was, where it was wrong, where it was partially built, and he needed to make sure that the people with him he could trust. We need to do our homework for whatever we feel God is calling us to do before we make it public. Back in our old church, we started a uh, divorce care and grief share. How many have heard of those ministries? They're great ministries. Divorce care was obviously what it meant to be. For those who have been divorced, you come in and you talk and you go through scripture and it's a biblical-based thing. Uh, grief share, we actually started that because we had a, a number of gentlemen in our church pass away within a short amount of time. And so we did that for the ladies in the church and it was sort of a grief share. You help each other through that particular part. But before we did that, we went through our membership roles to see, A, how many people would qualify for that. B, how many people would out of our memberships would be willing to lead it? Do we have the interest in it? Do we have the leaders for it? Let's look at the curriculum. Let's look, we bought the curriculum, we reviewed it, make sure it was biblical. 
met with a few potential leaders for these groups. We set a, set a start date. All of this before we even announced it to anybody else because we wanted to do and get everything in order so when we announced it, it's ready to go. And that's exactly what Nehemiah was doing. And even today, our board, we're praying about things that are still up in the air. Praying about different situations, different, different decisions to make. And some of them have been sidelined because of COVID. You know, we kind of put those in the back burner for right now. But we want to make sure we have all our ducks in a row before we make the next big decision. So keep praying for us and that God is able to give us wisdom for that. We need to know as much as possible about whatever it is that we're preparing to do so that we can make our, before we make our plan known, have everything lined up, have all your questions answered. Proverbs 18, 13 says, what a shame, what a folly to give advice before listening to the facts. How many have heard the expression, I've already made up my mind, don't confuse me with the facts. I think we have a lot of that going on today. So Nehemiah does this at night because he doesn't want the enemy to know what he's doing. Sometimes, you know, we need to do things off hours that God calls us to do. They decorated on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, evening, morning. How many know that being a Christian and doing God's work isn't an eight to five job? A lot of times it's, it's off hours. It's times when you don't feel like doing it but you gotta do it. I don't know how many times I was doing sermons on Saturdays at the other church because I was busy and didn't have time during the week. And the same thing happens today sometimes. You know, things come up and it's not eight to five. And you teach Sunday school, you work with the kids. You know, Anna's been doing a lot of stuff at home, getting ready for the musical. So stuff we do for God isn't eight to five and stuff we do for God can sometimes cause us to do things on off hours times that we want to spend resting but God calls us to step out and do it anyways Nehemiah 2.13 says by night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal wall and the dung gate examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire then I moved on to the fountain gate and the king's pool but there was not enough room for my mount to get through so I went up through the, by the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. So he wanted to make sure he understood what his brother was saying. How bad were the walls? And he went down the southern route just to see. He only went about halfway through, and then he went back again. And the reason he went to the southern route, most believe, is because the northern route was where the enemies were. We, we believe that the, the walls up there would have been totally destroyed because the enemy was north of the town. The southern part of the town, they might not have been as bad because they weren't facing any opposition from there. Maybe those walls were in pretty good shape. But as they went down, they found out that it was just as bad as the north. And once he got that, he figured, well, if these are this bad, then north is just as bad as well. Sometimes we just can't assume that what people tell us is correct. He could have just said, you know, my brother says this. I'll just take his word for it. He didn't. He had to go out and see it for himself. He had to face the facts for himself. Our one commentator says this, when we are confronted with problems, we can't just take the word of others. We need to examine it for ourselves. And we need to examine it truthfully. We can't look at it through rose-colored glasses. We have to analyze the situation and take it for what it is. Is it as bad as we think it is? 
And if it is as bad as we think it is, then we need to acknowledge that it is as bad as we think it is. We can't sugarcoat it. We can't make it sound better than it is. We have to look at the problem and really state it for what it is. It is this bad. That's what Nehemiah did. He wanted to make sure he got all the information. But he didn't do it as a negative thing. He wanted to have all his facts in a row so he could set out and start doing what God called him to do. We hear a lot of info today from different outlets. How many watch the news? It's good, don't watch the news. Because the things you hear in the news, you can't just assume that they're correct. More times than not, they're not. We need to get all the information we can and determine for ourselves what's true both in what's happening in the world today as well as what God's Word is calling us to do as a church. Nehemiah 2.16 says, The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because yet, as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Nehemiah wanted to give them an accurate assessment of the problem. What ex- he would get all the information down before he shared it with the people that were there. So he wouldn't tell them one thing and then find out later it was something else. Then the people get discouraged. Well, you didn't tell me that at the beginning. It's okay to give all the information. Once you assess it, give it all as it is. You don't want to have come back and tell them different things later on. After his midnight excursion, he came back and gave his report to the people in verse 17. It says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Now remember, most of the people he's talking to actually live in the city. So they knew what the condition of the walls were. Either they didn't go to care to find out, or they just were okay with the way it is. Now Nehemiah is able to say that he saw it too, and he wasn't just working on what someone told him. He saw it for himself. And notice how he includes himself in the solution to the problem. He says, we, he could have went back and stayed with the king and let Jerusalem be by itself. But he said, we're in trouble. We need to rebuild. Let us rebuild. So we won't be in disgrace. He was upbeat. We can do this. We can, we can do this wall. It's terrible, but we can do it. And he wasn't going to assign the people and then leave. You guys fix that wall. I'm going back to the king. You let me know when it's done. He stayed with them. He was part of it. As Christians and as what God calls us to do, we are involved in what God calls us to do as a church. We don't assign other people to do it. If God's calling you to do it, then you need to do it. If God's calling you to help other people do it, then you need to help other people do it. He was upbeat. Man, we can, we can do this. We can build this wall. I wrote down here, almost all ministry and all of your personal life and all of your church life, they are not spectator sports. They are sports that we all get involved with. How many of you that have families at home still just sit on the sidelines and let them do whatever they want to do? How's that work out for you? House burned down yet? No, you've got to kind of monitor everything they do at home, right? You've got to kind of mold them and make them and make them use their powers for good when they get old. You don't get to sit in the sidelines and watch everyone else do the work. 
Nehemiah didn't say, I'm going to sit here and watch you guys. You do it. He said, no, we can do it. We can rebuild it. Since the walls had been ruined for so many years, and Ezra tried and failed to rebuild them, the people were kind of resigned to the fact that, you know, that's the way they're always going to be. You know, when you look at things and you think that they've been this way for so long, they're never going to change. God can change them, right? You, you, look at, you look at the government today, you look at the politics today, and you say, it's never going to change. But God, God can change it. I don't know how, but God can change it. But notice how God changed these people. He used Nehemiah and he used the people to build the wall. God didn't just say, poof, the wall was built. They had to rebuild it. For things to change, we have to be involved in that. We have to be involved with what God's doing. We just can't sit down and say, okay, God, you, you take care of it. It involves us being involved in what God wants us to do. Nehemiah here was the outsider that was able to put life back into the people and give them the vision that God had given them. They'd been there all their lives probably, 70 years or so. Wall's never going to change. And he took one guy to come in and say, man, you, listen, you guys can do it. Get together. We can do We can build this wall. And you know what? They, it energized them. It got someone to come in from the outside to give them a shot of courage and say, you know, we can do this. And what happened? Nehemiah said to them, I told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. You know what he did? He told them that God was involved. Our old church, we were for years looking to build another facility because we were running out of space. And one of the problems was we never, never really took off, never really got off the ground. And the one thing that we, and because the church had exploded in size over the past 20 years, but now it's kind of, it's not going anywhere. And the one thing I remember about that is whenever the pastor would say, we need to do this, we need to do that, whatever we're going to do, he never said, God told me. Up to that point, he said, God told me, God did this, God did this, and it grew, grew, grew. But he never said that at, at this part. I believe that's why it never took off because it wasn't a God thing. He didn't hear specifically like he heard before about building it. Because what happens when you say, God told me to do this, I feel in my spirit God told me to do this, what happens? People get excited. And they believe God's in it. And so what did Nehemiah do? He comes back and tells them, God told me to do this because God did this for me. He gave them an example of the first miracle. Hey, God's hand was upon me. I got the materials. I got the okay. I got the army to come with me. If you don't believe that God's involved in that, then we're in trouble. But look what God's done just up to this point. So if he's done this up to this point, God's going to finish the wall. He told them how God was already at work. And the fact that he was already just even there. I'm here because God put me here. How God directed the king's heart, gave him passage, gave him lumber. Whenever we want to step out in faith, and we've done our homework, get all the facts we can, look back over the process and see where God has been in each step. What do I mean by that? When we bought the first church van, prayed about it, did our homework, and in one year, we paid off a four-year loan. When we replaced the furnace, 
It was a 15-year note. And we paid that off in less than two years. We look back and you see where God has met you every step of the way. And you know what? That gives you faith to take the next step. If God did this here, God did it here, why won't God do it here? And so he's telling them, hey, look, God gave me the okay. God gave me the work, the lumber, the trip. I'm here. What's not to trust? Now he's ready to start. And if God was in all of the pre-planning, up to this point, God's involved in it. How could they not trust God to finish what he started? And I wrote down here, think about where you are. Can you look back at your life and see how God set everything in motion so that you could be where you are today? Look back and see what God's done at different points along the way that made you who you are right now. Now, I've mentioned this on Wednesday night a couple times and maybe even on Sunday night. If you can go back and change one thing in your life, would you do it? Think about that. Because you know all know back to the future stuff, right? If you change one thing, your current situation would be changed as well. You may not be married to the same person you're married to. You may not have the kids you have. You might not have the job you have. All these because of one decision you might have made 20 years ago kind of put you on a course. And you look over that and you see where God brought you. And you look back and you see, okay, God was here, God was here. I didn't feel him, but God was here, God was here. And now I'm here because God has directed every step of your life. If that's true, that you are where you are today because God put you there, what's God calling you out to do tomorrow? We're not just coasting now, right? We're not, you know, there's one retirement plan for God. What's the retirement plan? You're dead. That's the retirement plan. If that's true, what's God calling you to right now? And if we said that there's no bench warmers, no, you know, no second string, everyone is involved in what God wants to do, not only to bless this church, this community, but our country as well. If God did all that, what do you think God can't accomplish through you now? If God's in it, God's brought you to this point, don't you think God will finish the work? One of the very first verses that God kind of spoke to me when I was going through all this preacher school stuff was like, this, this isn't for me. The one verse, God will finish what he started. Okay? What's God starting? What do you feel in your heart, your spirit, that God's starting in your life? The Bible says God will finish it. So what happens? He gets the people excited. Verse 18 says, hey, they reply, let's start rebuilding. We can do it. We'll do it. He did his homework. He came back and told the people the truth. He didn't sugarcoat it. And he said that despite all the stuff that happened, God was with them, and they can do it. And they were excited. Notice what he wasn't. He wasn't a bummer. He wasn't a downer, a Debbie Downer, right? He didn't come back and say, you know, those walls are terrible. I don't know if we could ever rebuild it or not. What do you think, guys? You think we should do it? No, he came back and said, they're terrible. It's horrible, but we can do it. God's involved. We can do it. That was whatever happened it was in the past. The walls are bad. Yeah, they're bad. But you can't just sit there. Now's the time to move forward and rebuild them. Think about your life. No matter what's happened in your past or this church's past or any church's past or our nation's past or how we got to where we are, 
You can't, can't dwell on that, can't change it. You are where you are. But now's the time to move forward. You can't let the past or even the current situation keep you stagnant. I, I quit. Might as well just quit. Nothing's going to change. Nehemiah got the people encouraged and they said, we can do it. Notice it was God's people that said we can do it. Not the world. The world's not going to change. We're God's people. Do we believe that God's involved in it or not? And if we do, then we trust God to finish it, but it also requires us to work. Nehemiah got the people encouraged and they said, hey, we can do it. But truthfully, it was God who encouraged the people because Nehemiah just gave him what God gave him. God's encouraging us today. Now is not the time to just sit around and wait. Now is the time to act. What is God calling each of us and us as a church to do? Now, right now, we're kind of in a, a limbo with all this gobbledygook that's going on. It doesn't mean we just sit around and wait for it to end. Okay, we'll just sit here and twiddle our thumbs until they tell us it's over. Now's the time to step out. Now's the time to keep working. Nehemiah 2.19 says, But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Whenever we step out, and we're going to step out as a church and as individuals, regardless of what's going on around us, you know what's going to happen? They're going to mock and ridicule you for telling you, oh, you can't do that. And they may even tell you it's against the law. Because what they, what they say, are you rebelling against the king? In other words, are you doing something illegal that we should put you in jail for? What should your response be? Should you respond? Should you just sit back and, well, you're right, okay. Should you be quiet about it and just go about what you're doing? Or should we speak up? I think that was your lesson today. The Bible gives us two seemingly conflicting answers to that. Proverbs 26, 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be like him yourself. In other words, someone says something to you that's kind of foolish, don't get into an argument with him. Let him go. The next, very next verse says this, Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. So there are times when you have to sit back and say, you know what, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to argue this. But then there are other times when you have to argue it. You have to set your point. Nehemiah was about to begin this new work with a bunch of new people. If he ignored him and just walked away, what would have happened to Nehemiah's reputation? Oh, well, Nehemiah is kind of a weak leader. We're not going not to follow him. These other guys appear stronger than him. God needed Nehemiah to speak out and acknowledge that God was in control of this. And so he answered these fools according to their folly. Verse 20 says, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Sometimes we as believers, we're called to be quiet. Jesus was before Pilate. The Bible says he just didn't say anything. But then there are other times that we are called to speak out. 
Remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist wasn't kind of a quiet guy. What did he say to the king? Mark 6, 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John called him out. Publicly called him out. Now it cost him, but he called him out. Doing God's work will always be challenging. We will face opposition either from the enemy, from the world, or maybe even some that we know in our friendship and our circles. We have to be ready and willing to step out in faith and just do it. Let the results be up to God. I didn't write this in my notes because I wasn't sure if I was going to say it or not. But I'm going to say it anyways. We shut down a few months ago. Okay? Shut down two months. Give it a break. But we're not shutting down again. If you are uncomfortable, that's fine. Watch online. But the Bible says we're to gather together. So we're not shutting down. We're not. Sometimes, it, you know, you've got to say, you know, we're not doing it. And whether, you know, technically they've never attacked churches or religious institutions in Pennsylvania. But it might be coming. They do it in California. And, you know, John MacArthur, he said, I don't care. I'm having church anyways. And uh, I forget, was it uh, Rodney Howard Brown? He was arrested in Florida, I think, for having church. They let him go like the next day. world's going to ridicule you. The world's going to maybe put you in jail or say you're going to go to jail for doing what God calls you to do. God calls the church to be open, to be open. We're, especially in this time when people need something, why would we close? So, all right. Would you stand as we close this morning? You know, it's, it's always difficult to, to do things like this because you want to have an appearance of caring for people, but you also want to have an appearance of, of faith and trust. And there's a balance between the two. And I have no problem with folks that are nervous about this thing, who are cautious about this, and that's, that's fine. But when it begins to interfere with what God has called this church to do, that might be an issue. And I, I'm not, you know, I don't, if you are uncomfortable, I'm cool. I'm all right with that. But what we want to do is offer people what God can give them in this time. A lot of people are fearful. A lot of people are nervous about this. You know, what's going to happen? Well, for a point, we have the answer. Christ, right? When people come to Christ, it doesn't mean that their worries subside. It just means they have hope and, hey, I'm not going to worry about it. Now, I was talking to someone, you know, when if, I do, if I'm wise and do what I need to do, when my time comes, what's the Bible say? All, all my days are appointed. Amen. God knows when that time's going to be. So I think the last thing I, I read, a quote a while ago, it said, you know, we are immortal 
until we're done. So if God's calling you to do something, do it. If you're not doing it, you're in effect done. So let's pray. Let's close your head. Close your, yeah, close your heads. Close your eyes. Bow your heads. That's better. Don't close your heads. Always be open for wisdom. Always be open to God's word. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you that you've given us an awesome responsibility. Nehemiah was called to rebuild the walls of the city. You've called the church to build your kingdom. And just like Nehemiah, you gave him what he needed to accomplish that task. Lord, you've given us as a church what we need to accomplish that task. Nehemiah had workers to do it. We are your church. We are your workers to do that. And I pray that you would energize us and fill us with your, your excitement like you filled those guys with. Man, we can do it. Let's start. What's God calling each one of us to do? Independently, maybe with your family or as a body in this church, what is God calling you to? Or in the community, what's God calling you to do? That won't get done unless you do it. The wall didn't get rebuilt if those guys didn't do it. It'd still be in ruins. So it requires us to accomplish what God calls us to. And as I said before, there are no bench warmers in God's kingdom. Everyone, everyone, if you're at home watching this, if you're in this church hearing this, everyone is called to be a part of what God is doing. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would really minister to that. Give us that burden, Lord. Give us that, that divine appointment that sparks that interest so that, Lord, we, we know that you're involved in it. And help us to step out in faith and put a little, little test in front of you. Gideon, it's not a normal thing you do. But when Nehemiah asked the king for all these things, he was kind of putting out a fleece. King, I need this, I need this, I need this. And once he saw all those things fulfilled, he knew God was in it. So sometimes we need to just step out. And when God meets us, we'll know that God's in it. Father, I pray your blessings upon each person here today. God, just fill them with your spirit. Anoint them with power. Use them for your glory. Let the kingdom of God grow. Let it expand. Let more people come to Christ because of what we are doing, not only in this church, but specifically outside of this church. And allow people to see Jesus in what we do. Help us to be bold when we need to be bold. Help us to be quiet when we need to be quiet. But help us to have the courage to do, to do what you call us to do. And Father, we will thank you as we see great things happen with each one of us personally, with this church, with this community. As we see great things happen, Lord, we'll know that you're involved and we will be excited and continue your work. So Lord, bless us as we leave today. We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. See you Wednesday night. And don't forget WMs or women's on Friday.